Well, good morning and blessings to all of you. You know, we're, we're in this uh, fall series now, um, this idea of building a sustainable faith and building blocks for a sustainable faith. is something we've been exploring for a couple of weeks. And, you know, we're going to be continuing on with that. Again, we've been talking about why we need this. And a big part of it has to do with the fact that we live in some really complicated times. And uh, when we sometimes look at what's going on in our world, it can not only be a bit uh, disturbing, but it also, it also can affect us in different ways. And, and we talked about how we have other things in our lives that are going on sometimes, whether it's at work or just um, you know, in other areas, maybe in our relational life. And that's not even counting the things that are going on inside of us sometimes that we're trying to work through. And so the need to have a faith that is nimble, that is capable of being um, able to, to survive in, in both the really prosperous good times when it's easy to forget God and also at the times when it's really hard and when part of us is really discouraged. We're talking about have, having a faith that is really adaptable, resilient, and um, able to sustain itself through all kinds of different scenarios, growing, alive, genuine. So um, I'm going to talk some more about that in a moment, but I just want to pray. I'm going to ask God to just bless our time. I know it's, it's early in this day. We thank you for this good day, Lord. We thank you for this morning time. We want to ask for you to bless what we're about to share together. Our, our prayer is that we would um, learn and we would be open to the growth that you have for us and that we would be encouraged but, because a lot of times that's what we need. We need to have a strength that flows into us. And I think that we're gonna, when we look at here in this morning time, that it will, it will, if we are willing to receive it, be of tremendous benefit to us. And, and so I just pray for your grace, and I pray for your mercy, and I pray for your peace to abound over this time. And I just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, God. So we're talking about uh, an, an additional building block, and I wanted to return back to that second, uh, well, second Peter first chapter, the verses that we've been exploring. Now, as we read through them, what I'd like to do is just, you know, again, reminding each, each and every one of us here that watch what Peter's doing as we start into this. He's, he starts out by introducing himself. He then declares that God has made these amazing resources available to us. And then he starts talking about the things that we can do to build our faith. And so he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith, with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, bondservant, one submitted um, by his own volition and choice, an apostle, one sent. Uh, so one surrendered and one sent. He describes himself this way, based on what Christ has done, what Jesus has done. Grace and peace, he says, let that be multiplied to you. May it be multiplied to you as you learn more and more about who God is in the knowledge of God and, and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power and he uses these amazing superlatives to describe God as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by his own excellence by which we've been given which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature that God may live within you and that you having escaped the, the corruption that is in this world through the lust as he describes it through you know some, sometimes these things that would pull at us to pull us back away from God he's talking about those things he's talking about the overcoming life and so he says for this reason based on what God has made available to us here's our part in it and he starts to list these different we, we're calling them building blocks 
He says, for this very reason, give all diligence, put all your heart into this, make every effort, contend, add to your faith, that's the first one, add to your faith, virtue, moral excellence, courage, that's the second one, add to virtue, knowledge, something we've been exploring in the past couple of weeks, and then he says to knowledge, I want you to add self-control, and he goes on, self-control, perseverance, and godliness, and there's a couple more after that. The uh, first piece there, those first three, they have to do with us in relationship to God. Faith, an awakening to him, a belief in who he is. Uh, the idea of virtue is, is an activated faith, not simply a passive faith or just a mere religious expression. And then he says you need to have a faith that is, is you know, alive and, and energetic. But then he goes on to say, but add to that faith, that energetic faith, add to that knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So that is, it is not reckless. And um, it's just really trying to present a balanced sense of what it is to follow Jesus. But then he says, on top of these things, add self-control. That's interesting because self-control is something that has to do with the idea of something internal. In fact, the next three things, self-control, look at that, perseverance and godliness, all have to do with what we call internal dispositions. So we're talking about what's growth on the inside. And this is really important because we live in a culture where there are so many voices that call to us. And the fact is that um, we, we are living in one of the most remarkable, amazing times in history. Some people call it the most extraordinary time ever to be alive, where we are being presented on a daily basis, and we probably don't realize it, we just take it for granted, but um, we are being presented with extreme abundance and also extreme options. Never before have we had so many options, so much access to so many different things at our just quick disposal. I know we, we, again, this is the world in which we swim, it's you know, the water in which we swim and the world in which we live, so we can sometimes take it for granted, but I mean, it's astonishing to think about how much information we can get and how rapidly we can acquire it and how many things that we can explore that previous generations um, never had and never would have had the opportunity to be able to do. Uh, the, the ability to buy things, the ability to you know, really zero in on this amazing, you know, span of products and experiences that we can get with just an access of a, of a few minutes, and sometimes even less than that. Again, extraordinary. You know, it was just about, oh, I'd say less than 100 years ago. Well, let's just call it around the beginning of the 20th century, even here in America, where, you know, I, I was thinking about this, something as... Um, it, for, for them, it was a huge thing. We don't even, some of us don't even know what, what it is that I'm about to say. But there was a period in America where one of the most special things a person could get was a Sears and Roebuck catalog. And this, especially in the, in the, it developed in the late 1800s, you know, and then into the, from about 1890 to 1940, this was like the primary way in which people who didn't have access to markets and, and to things that were available in a city and at a time when America was far more rural than it is, um, they were able to, to buy things and see products 
um, if you, at some point, it's, it would be interesting exercise, especially if you have a kind of historical bent to you, to kind of look at um, how people, what, what, the, what that catalog represented. That, it was, it was a big, you know, big black and white with, you know, pen and ink draw, you know, drawings that, that were reprinted, showing you the product. You could mail in, yeah, well, you would mail in, right? And you would make an order, and then you would wait for it to come. And it was like an amazing thing. I mean, people, especially who didn't have access to a lot of, um, again, you know, marketplace thing, you know, things that maybe would be more urban, they could actually, you know, get products. And, and for some of them, it was just astonishing to open up the pages and see the countless products that could be bought, you know, perfumes. And you could even buy homes, literally, that could be made. And people did. They would order a home through the mail. And it would be sent to them in pieces. And they would reassemble it. S amazing stuff. And again, for people who were in the back country it, it, and didn't have access to toilet tissue, it doubled as, a, as an additional benefit. It was very utilitarian. It had a, <laughs> a bit of trivia you didn't need there. But I mean, the thing about it is, it was, it was a, an amazing time because people had access in ways, you know, for them, it was, it was like a whole world opened up. Well, again, I, I say that now because the idea of shopping out of a catalog like that for the way in which we would get a product is like, that's like of another era and world. We have such a different, um, you know, environment in which we live. I mean, today, again, we are bombarded all over the place, more than we'll ever realize, with ads and images. I mean, whether it's driving across the bridge, you're just inundated with things, right? Um, whether it's, in, and they're, they're constantly moving, uh, whether it's, you know, watching a sports program and, or anything, you know, we're, we're going to have to also have commercials that we watched which advertise. When we're going online, now we have specialized advertisement, particularly tailored to address the unique buying lifestyle that we are determined to have, again, for our benefit, but in reality also, because people know that's how we will buy things. And so much of, of what is going on is designed to incite in us if I may say it this way, and I don't say it meanly or angrily, but to create a dissatisfaction or a sense of a need, then ca causing us to want to fulfill that need by buying something. That's why a lot of people today have tremendous spending issues, because it's so easy to buy things now. All it takes is a touch of a button. That's why people are getting very addicted. That's why sexual addiction is such a reality in our culture, because it's so easy now. It's so accessible. And when we're, when we're inundated with things like that, you know, whether we're men or women, whatever our areas of struggle are, it's just like we're constantly getting voices coming at us in all kinds of diff different directions, trying to get us to respond to them. And a lot of times, those responses can get us into trouble. You know, some of us may, may then have spending problems. We may have, again, other types of issues that begin to emerge. Uh, we begin to have a, a sense of dissatisfaction because we're constantly being given images of what truly happy people look like. If you buy this product, if you look like this, if you go to this place where everybody seems so happy, this is what we're, so we're constantly being told these things. And now the difference is we're being told them in increasing amounts. And so that it becomes just a kind of way in which we live and operate. I say that because I was, I was reading about um, something C.S. Lewis wrote in his classic. You know, C.S. Lewis became a great thinker in the 20th century, Christian apologist, um, brilliant uh, professor. Uh, who was not a believer but became one and was influenced by J.R. Tolkien and all that. So he wrote this classic book called, you know, it's still classic, called Mere Christianity. 
I guess it's still classic as a bit of redundancy, but the idea of something being classic, it was something in the past that has continued to live on. He wrote particularly in that uh, book, Mere Christianity. In one of his chapters, he devoted it to the issue of sexual morality in the culture. And he, he said something that was very interesting. Um, I put it in the handout in your column there. He says, our ancestors have handed over to us organisms, our bodies, which are warped in this respect. And we grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. That is crossing lines. And there are people who want to keep our, and this is interesting, keep our sex instinct inflamed in order to make money out of us. Because of course, a man or a woman with an obsession is a man who has very little sales resistance. Now God knows our situation, Lewis says. And he will not judge us as if we have no difficulties to overcome. You know what he says, what, what matters is the sincerity and the perseverance of our will to overcome them. I just thought, you know, how true that is. I mean, if there was ever a time in this, you know, culture, you know, time in, in the world where we need to have self-control, it's right now because there's so many things that are crying out to us. And we've, it's amazing, we have so many things accessible to us, but there are so many people who are very unhappy, um, maybe more lonely than ever, and trying to find that in, in so many places that often lead to destructive things. And we have a lot of, a lot of, of us who are, are finding it difficult to exercise self-mastery and to live healthily with our emotions. And so, you know, the Bible has a lot to say for us um, and to us, because the Lord really does want us, as Peter suggested, to live with a higher degree of self-control, to add to our faith self-control. The word he actually uses in the literal Greek that we translate out self-control there, um, enkrateia, is uh, an interesting word. It's, uh, it implies the ability to take a grip on oneself. It implies the ability to have health, exercise healthy self-government, to be able to say no and yes to the right, no to the wrong things, yes to the right things. In fact, the ancient Greeks, is interesting, they thought and spoke a lot about this virtue, this, this self-control. And um, Aristotle in particular had said that there were essentially, this is interesting, he said there were four states in life, he described them, in relation to a person and their passions. And he had four words that he used. And he said one of them, and it's just real quick here, he said the, the first word he described was the word we, it's called sophosuni. It, it meant, it, it had to do with the, the condition in, in when someone was completely had, I guess, had cut themselves off from, off from their passions. They were almost, you know, Spock-like, you know, totally uh, reason-oriented. Don't show anything. Passion has no effect on me, right? That was one condition. It was a condition, by the way, that Aristotle admired. Another, another condition, which he said was the extreme opposite, was akalasia. It was a word in which he, it, it described the complete opposite of someone who had subjected their passion to reason. Uh, akalasia had to do with someone who had no ability at all to control themselves and their passions. Whatever the feelings were, we go with them. The complete absence of self-control. And... In Aristotle's mind, this was to be avoided at all costs. But then in between the two extremes, and we'll see the connection in a moment, were two other words, um, two other ideas. Acrasia, where reason and, and passion are competing, but passion prevails, the feelings prevail, they, they get the best of us. 
And so he saw that as weakness or a lack of self-control. And then the fourth word, which is the word that Peter uses in this passage, right? And kriteia, this idea of passion and our feelings and reason fighting and having reason, as it were, prevailing. Um, in other words, he's talking about self-control, effective self-governance, living above the dips of our emotions and simply the urges that would drive us even into unhealthy places. See, here's the deal. In the Christian life, the, it's the conception is not the obliteration of passion and emotion. Far from that. God wants us to be a people who are fully alive. He glories in that. He wants us to be able to feel things and to be able to express those feelings. I think that's very clear. The reason I know that is because our great example, Jesus, was not a man who was devoid of feelings. He wept. He was hurt. He could, he could, be, he could feel the pain of loss. I mean, when, when God models for us what, what humanity looks like at its best in Christ Jesus, he doesn't show us a person who is just, you know, sort of cornered off from their feelings. He's a person who, he shows us someone who, who is like God in the sense that, I'm talking about in his humanity, who has genuine capacity to have his heart broken. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to take you in my arms as he weeps, but you would not have me. You know? The, 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 the point is, is that Christ really does want us to be a... Here, I guess the way of saying it is, it's not about the obliteration of passion, but rather in our feelings, but it's about harnessing our passions so that they become our servant rather than our tyrant. Right? So, so it, it, it's, it's, it's about having good, good things flow out of us, that, that not, not, but not cornered off, not, not just like, I'm not going to feel anything. That's how I protect myself. That's not what God wants. I'm not going to even risk loving, loving because I'll be hurt. You know, God wants to teach us how to be really, see, we, we sing about it, but God really does desire us in Christ to be increasingly free, but in a life-giving way. And that brings really us, you know, in other words, bound to nothing. And that does bring us, if we think about it, if you think about it, back to Peter's own past. Because he himself was someone who, who had, was so passionate. I mean, in scripture, he comes out as this very passionate, feeling guy who just goes with his emotions. And, and when he's in, he's all in. And, you know, when he's committing, he's all committed. And when he makes a statement, he doesn't just make it halfway. He makes it all the way. I mean, he's just, this is kind of how he comes across. And if you remember, there was that one incident that occurs right on the night of Jesus' betrayal. Where Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he knows what's about to happen. And he can see it coming. And it's, it's not good. And in part of him doesn't want anything to do with it, the cross, and the, what it represents, the separation from the Father. We've talked about this all the time, you know, um, the, the, the humiliation that he's about to experience, the, the indignity of being stripped down and, and hammered onto a tree and put up as a petty criminal on a hill as his enemies spit at him and mock him. And knowing what he was and knowing what he could do, yet to totally allow himself to be plundered in such a, an awful way. To know that he had to walk into that, and he didn't really want to do it, not in his, because he, he didn't. He, did, he, he tells his, the father, if, if there's another way, 
would you show me that way? I say that because when we look at, look at this passage, which I also put in your handout, in Matthew 26, it's just a few verses here. It says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here a while while I go to pray over there. And he took, took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. There it is. The Lord had emotions. <laughs> he felt things. It wasn't the denial of his feelings. That's not what godliness is. But then he said to them, my soul is seeming sorrowful, even, even um, to death. I just need you to, I don't expect you to really understand what I'm about to have to do. There's really no way you could understand it. At a spiritual level, you can't even comprehend what I'm about to walk into. But I would appreciate one thing. You are my friends. You are, you are my, my, the ones who I have loved. And it, if you could do one thing, I would appreciate it. My most trusted disciples, just stay up. And just kind of be watchful with me and pray with me and just be present. You know, that's what we need sometimes a friend to be. It's like, in Jesus' case, they could not walk where he was going to walk. That was going to be a solitary walk. He, none of them were going to be able to come. But in this moment, you could help me by just being present. And look what happens, right? He went a little further, fell on his face. That is, he got down and onto the ground, and he began to pray. And he said, oh, my father, if it is possible, would you let this cup pass from me? If there's another way, I would prefer it. But then the perfect prayer of surrender, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you, you will. Not my will, as the older version says, but your will be done. And then he came back to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And they were, they, they, the one thing he had asked, they couldn't do. What? <laughs> Could you not watch me just one hour? That's all I asked. Watch and pray, he says. Words that echo down to us lest you enter into temptation, because, you know, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh, it's weak. Which is interesting, because the desire of their spirit, he said, your desire is to stand with me. In your inner being, in your, he, he was saying, there is a desire in you to want to move with me, to watch with me, to be, to be what I need you to be in this moment. But he says, but your ability to control your natural inclinations is just lacking. And, and the, honestly, it's because the flesh was weak and, and they were unable to align it with the right yearnings of their spirit. And I think we, we may, listen, we may know what we need to do and we may have the desire to do it, but we lack the strength sometimes or the capacity to sustain the stamina. So on the one hand, we may have the, know, the knowing. Let's call it the know-how. And we may have the, the want to, but we lack the strength to do it. Or some of us, what happens is we start out and we start to do something that is right. We start to position our attitude properly, but we can't follow through. Something about us begins to weaken and we have a difficult time sustaining our good intentions. And this is part of what, what the Lord is getting at here. I mean, there's, there is something to be said about the power of God's spirit. And in fact, self-control is described in Galatians as a fruit of his spirit. But in, this, in the way that Peter is using it, 
he's actually talking about it as something that we must choose to add to our faith. It's true that the Lord will, part of what will happen is God will give us, as the opening of that chapter says, access to his resource. But what Peter's talking about here is something that is a little bit different. When he says self-control, when he's saying, you let us add to our faith self-control, what he is saying is, we, in this case, we don't have the luxury of just throwing this all on God. That there is actually a part that we play in the growing life. God creates the opening. God provides something of his presence and his amazing promise. But there is also choices that we make that contribute to this. That, that we, we can train ourselves to, to exercise more, I would say, um, of, a, of an ability to position ourselves to receive the grace that God wants to give. And this is important because, you know, again, we may have the knowledge of what we should be doing. We may have, honestly, now it may not always be 100%, but we have a desire to do right, right? We have a desire sometimes to do what we know God is wanting us to do, but we are lacking sometimes the ability to actually do it and follow through, and that's where we struggle so much. It's not the knowing. It's not even the wanting. It's the ability to follow through with it, and that is exactly what God wants to get it because he wants to grow us, and, and, I'll, and so in the, in the minutes that we have left, as I, as I was thinking about this, I was going, okay, Lord, I know that there are things that you want to develop in us. How do we do this? How do we, how do we increase our capacity for self-control? And so I'm going to put a couple of things out because to me, it's one thing to say, this is what we should pursue in a world such as ours. But how, how can we do this? Here's some clues. Here's some ways to improve. Here's some ways to apply. The first one is something we talk about all the time. It's sort of part of our um, exploration consistently. We talk about the value of knowing ourselves and how the Christian life really needs us to be people who think about who we are, not because of ego, not somehow to just only be self-focused in a, in a self-centered way, but so that we can know and be aware of our weak areas and our, our, our character um, traits that tend to put us in places that, you know, sometimes we feel like we're, we're just extremely vulnerable. And um, if we know our susceptibility, if we have an idea and we've thought about our, dis, you know, our, I guess, dispositional tendencies, then we're, we're at least going to be aware of things. We, we talk about how sometimes our past affects us. And it does. A lot of times our past experiences now have embedded themselves into who we are. Sometimes it has to do with our upbringing or things that we saw modeled. Other times it has to do with certain things that you know, we, we crossed lines around. And, and now that, that has become something that is, is, is a struggle for us. And so, and we know that there are weak spots. And, and, and you know, I think what, what the Lord wants to teach us how to do is to be aware of those places and be honest about it. Because when we're honest, then we can begin to address it and the Lord can begin to teach us how to go about protecting ourselves. This is really important because a lot of, we talk about self-control, but, but self-control means I need to have a, a good understanding of myself and be really honest about my weaknesses. What are the things that tend to propel us into certain places? Have we thought about that? 
Have we pulled outside? Have we asked some people who, who we trust and love? Give me some honest feedback on what you're seeing here. To understand, to be able to know what I need to pray into, to know how to protect myself. Because when certain things happen, you know, when certain types of stress is placed in my life, here's what I tend to do. When certain things happen, this is what triggers this kind of a response, right? The, the more aware we are of that, the, I think the, the more possibility we have to begin to create um, the right kind of, and I use this word, spiritual ecosystem for our, for our ability to grow and prevail. It, it, it is something that God really wants us to do. Now, in some cases, here's number two. In some cases, moderation is not an option. And I, I say it this way because, you know, because, again, we're talking about self-control. Some, perhaps, we are a person who's prone to extremes. And it may be prone to extremes in an area. So we are now aware we have an area of unique vulnerability. We could fall, let's say, for example, we, fall, we know that certain things send us into deep dips of depression. And then in those places, we tend to become more reckless. We begin to lose our sense of focus. We begin to say or do things that afterwards we regret. Maybe some of us, it has to do with other things like overwork or, or not properly pacing ourselves. And we notice that what happens is under that kind of an environment, we start to then become, feel like, well, you know, I don't have, I, I, when, I, when I have my time away, all of a sudden I, I feel less like I have to be in control of everything, and that's when we get ourselves in trouble. I don't know, it could be a lot of different things. But there are some situations where, it's, it, where we are tend, tend towards extremes, and the general rule of thumb is this, that if in a certain area our only two options are, on the one hand, just because of the way it is, one hand abuse, and the other hand abstention. That we really, that's the only way, if, if, that, if, we, if we're really honest about it, those are only two options, then always choose the abstention. Because the abuse and the, the tendency to become, um, you know, addicted to things that are not good for us is just not an alternative. See, that, that requires humility before the Lord. Now, there are a lot of things that God will just want to teach us how to walk the middle line through. And how do I, how do I, so it's not an issue of, of you know, abuse or abstention. It's learning how to walk the moderate path. That's okay. But there are some things that we just go, you know what? Every time I do this, the same thing happens. Every time I do this. This is what happens. It's, I do this over and over again. And I don't want to do it anymore. And I think in those times, this is when we need to be sometimes a bit more honest about where we are, at least at this time in our life, for sure. And then we bring other people into that conversation to help us pursue the things, the liberty in Christ, that we desire. You see what I'm saying? And one of the ways that the, the church did this historically, and it's the third piece that I want to put up there, is they, they had this habit of exercising what is known as spiritual disciplines. If you think about it, um, a, a, a follower of Jesus is called a disciple. A disciple is essentially a disciplined one. It's a committed follower. And so the, the church, as it emerged in, you know, some of the historical uh, periods of the church, began to, I, I guess, you know what they did was they, they, they started exploring what the, what the scriptures taught about how if we implement certain practices in our lives, they will grow certain qualities in us. 
And the spiritual disciplines, as they've come to be known, um, had, had tremendous benefit because they, they allowed um, people to practice faith in a way that created strength in their lives. Now, um, two, two of the books that, for me, as a follower of Jesus, that I've had a, a tremendous blessing from, that both relate to the idea of spirit, growing in the spiritual d- disciplines, or are two also very significant books. One of them is by Dallas Willard. It's called The Spirit of the Disciplines. I lo- this book I love. And the other one is, is prob- was a more popular book called The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. But both of the books talk about how we can implement certain things that the church has done historically over, over the centuries to increase life in us. They, some disciplines are the disciplines of withholding from things. They call them disciplines of abstinence. Others are the disciplines of engagement, what we pursue. Things, you know, when we think about withholding, a lot of times those disciplines might be things like solitude or silence or fasting or frugality. Things, things that, in other words, for a period of time, I'm not going to be just getting um, always around everybody. I might pull back. That's solitude. I'm, or I might decide that I'm not going to speak as much. Um, and I'm, or fasting, which many of us are aware of. I'm going to withhold myself from food as a way of strengthening my capacity to say no to things. Um, the idea of frugality, just because I can buy it, I'm not going, necessarily going to, because I'm entering into a season of discipline in my life to strengthen my capacity to exercise self-control. Th- this is a tradition in script, in, in, really in the scriptures, but also that has been practiced by the church as a mechanism for strengthening ourselves, so that in, if I'm strengthening myself in my one area, I can, it shows up in another area. And we talk about things like engagement, study, and worship, and prayer, and celebration, and submission, and confession. There's so many things that are available to us. I guess what I'm trying to get at is there are tools. There are real tools that can be utilized to strengthen our capacities. Last thing I'll say about it is this. There are times when the Lord is going to call us to stretch out our resolve. Or at least in, in life, there are opportunities to stretch out our resolve. That's the way I use it. Um, we get to practice. If we, if we make up our mind to sort of say, you know what, this is going to be a season. See, for some of us, for example, we might decide, you know what, I'm going to have a season in which I'm going to really pull back from using technology. That's an example of something. I'm just going to really pull back. I'm going to have a season where I let the, the ground be calm. The, and I'm going to try to hold myself to a time in which I'm more thoughtful about how I you know, engage things. Um, uh, in, you'll notice uh, in the handout, I, I put this quote from philosopher William James, which I think is great. He says, keep the faculty, and we'll kind of close with this idea, keep the faculty of effort alive in you by a little gratuitous exercise every day. That is, be systematically ascetic or heroic in little unnecessary points. Do every day or two something for no other reason than you would rather not do it. So that when the hour of dire need draws nigh, it may find you not unnerved and untrained to stand the test. It's an interesting concept. He's talking about practicing, not just going with how we feel. Here's the deal. It's not just what we say no to, having strength to say no to things that are unhelpful to us. It's also learning how to say yes to the things that God's calling us to. And so, I'll tell you, I have this, I, like, I, I have a habit of exercising. What I have found is that one of the, one of the best things I can do is start. Okay? So here, well, a lot of times I'll be in this situation, you probably relate to this. You know, I don't want to do it. 
Like, I really don't want to do it today. And so, you know, I just don't feel like it. It doesn't, doesn't have anything in me, you know, that's calling itself to me. I'd rather not. Now, but I kind of have a, a, I made a decision that I wanted to be doing this for, you know, this is part of my life. So I stay refreshed in God. It's, I want to be a good steward. So a lot of times what I do is I trick myself. And even now, as I'm telling myself that I trick myself, <laughs> I am aware. But I'll say, you know what, all I'm going to do, I'm going to do a shorter exercise today. I'm just going to go, and I'm only going to do just 20 minutes. That's all. I can do that. Again, if I have to, I'll just do 15. I'll just, you know, I'll do something. I'm going to go. So I tell them, eh, and then I'll start talking about, yeah, I could do that. And I don't want to do it. I'll do, the, I'll do 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah, OK. So I get out there, and then I start doing it. And after a while, and I know this ahead of time, but I'm still telling myself it, <laughs> that I know that once I actually start and get going, I go, ah, oh, you know what? I'm feeling OK right now. I think I'll keep going for a while. And I end up stretching that thing out. But it's, it, if I, a lot of times, if I, if I hadn't started sort of like telling myself, you know, I'm just getting out. That's a great tool also for devotions in our life with God. <laughs> I wish it wasn't the case that way, because it's really supposed to be and is a great privilege. But there are times when the dailiness of practicing a life that stays close with God, we think, eh, you know, I just don't have time to, for this amount of time. But can we give five minutes? I know it sounds, it, it's, it almost sounds sad. Can I give five minutes of devoted time to Jesus in the morning for my own well-being? Yeah, I, I could do that. Read my devo a devotional or some type of some scripture. You know what I'm saying? And then what happens is a lot of times we find that we, we actually, once we start, see, here's the key. Starting is huge. The start matters. When we started, a lot of times we find, wow, now I'm stretching myself out. And so, again, Lord wants to teach us how to help us, grow us, how to say no to the things that would damage us, but also how to say yes to the things that are going to bless us, right, and move us. And honestly, not just bless us, but end up blessing a whole lot of people that we touch, love, some of whom are alive, some of whom are not even been born yet, and your life is going to have a direct effect on them. So let's pray together, all right? Lord, uh, we thank you because your word is just so true and so wise. And we live in really complicated times with such amazing things happening all around us. And yet, some of those things can have a, also a very, I guess, sometimes negative or at least damaging effect on us. And so how do we grow as the, as the man or as the woman you've called us to become? How do we increasingly honor you with our lives? How do we have a faith that is sustainable? How do we exercise self-control or self-governance, a kind of ability to, to overcome our, our tendencies to, to go into places we shouldn't go or to allow certain things to just sort of begin to define us, and then that affects all of our relationships and everything else, how do we learn to grow as the person you're inviting us to become? I pray that you would teach us these things, Lord. Help us to exercise greater self-control when it comes to pursuing the things that you have, so that we will become the people who not just know what to do 
and have a desire to do it, but increasingly become able to follow through on the good things that we desire to do to honor you with our lives. So let the love and grace of God prevail over us. I ask for the blessing, you know, bless our, our closing time, bless our time of giving as a people, bless, bless, Lord, this song that we close with as well. I ask for this, Jesus, in your name I pray, amen, God. Thank you.